Dan McCarthy, welcome to Spamming Zero. How are you this hey. fine day? Doing well. Thanks for having me. It's a beautiful day over here. So, where are you at, Dan? I'm in Atlanta. I'm about, Atlanta. yeah, I'm actually in, in the business school right now here at Goizueta. Uh, Dan, I always get excited to talk to fellow marketing leaders who obsess about data almost like as much as I do, because like, that's like an area that I love as well. Let's dive into this whole idea. I'd love for you to give us like, what is, what is something that is top of mind for you right now when it comes to like automation related to customer service? Um, what's your take on it? Well, certainly my, my knee-jerk reaction is to kind of bring it back into the CLV framework. And, um, and the interesting thing about automation is that it's going to entail this kind of swapping of variable costs for fixed cost. And so from a CLV perspective, fixed costs are often ignored, uh, whereas the variable costs factor directly into the contribution margin. And so for the same amount of revenue, there's kind of an arbitrage there that um, the CLV kind of has to go up because you're ignoring the cost and you're kind of taking all the credit for the benefit. <laughs> um, so it is kind of an interesting, I, I don't know if you call it a gap in CLV, but uh, it's certainly one of the things that I think motivates moving from something that's entirely driven by CLV to something that also incorporates, you know, what is my overhead? How, how might that be changing? And how does that factor into whether I think it's a good idea to automate in the first place or not? So Dan, you've been looking at and studying the metric, the concept of CLV for, for quite some time now. Maybe it'd be good to just like kind of give some background on like how you personally got into all of it, what kind of drew you to it and some of the like insights and headway and progress that, that you've made in your work there. Yeah, it's really two things. Uh, the first was my background in finance that I'd spent. I had been kind of a traditional coming out of undergrad finance, finance, fan, finance. And um, <clears throat> so I'd gone to a hedge fund for about six years before coming back for my PhD. So, you know, kind of being colored by that perspective, you know, I think was really powerful. But the second was meeting Pete Fader. He's a Wharton marketing professor, and he has spent many years studying customer lifetime value. And the reason that it, it, it kind of was a pretty powerful one-two punch is because ultimately, you know, when you think about it, what is CLV? It is NPV. You know, it's the net present value of a customer. And so, um, kind of when you take a, like a, a project finance way of thinking about an investment in the customer, um, it kind of brings the finance together with the marketing. And, uh, yeah, I think it helps kind of clarify kind of what it should be as well. So, uh, see, so yeah, it really was kind of the combination of those two things. What do you think brands can do to adopt some of these new metrics? Like, like for example, net present value, that's a new metric a lot of brands probably wouldn't even know how to even get there. So what's your advice to them? Yeah, I think it, it really is kind of three things that you need. Uh, you need the right data to be able to do something with it and actually to measure it in the first place. <laughs> and then you need the right definitions. Uh, there's a lot of people who have kind of interesting, you know, kind of suboptimal definitions for what these measures should be. And then you need the right predictive models to be able to uh, actually bring it to life and predict it. You know, you can have a great definition and the right data to be able to measure it. But if you're using the wrong predictive model, 
you know, you're, you're, you're not going to have a good estimate of it. And so, so you really kind of need those three things. Um, I would say to get started, you don't need to have, you know, the A plus solution for all three of those things. Um, yeah, I think that just to get CLV, the, the main thing that you need is your, your transaction log. And then, yeah, just kind of basic information about, you know, how, how profitable are your orders? And, um, and then, you know, some notion of how much you're, you're spending to acquire customers. But usually kind of when I'll see kind of, when I'll see companies making their, their path along that journey, uh, they'll kind of start with, you kind of have to have a good transaction log. You know, most companies are going to have that, but they won't necessarily have, say, contribution profit down at the transaction level or super hyper detailed, you know, marketing spend data where it's properly linked to customer acquisition data. You know, I think that that's where you want to work to, but you know, oftentimes you're starting with something a lot more basic than that. Yes, yeah, so I think that'll allow you to kind of get to the B to the B plus solution. <laughs> um, and then the hope is to really just kind of iteratively work your way up from there. Um, so you got your CLBs. Now we can think about how we can kind of enrich the data to incorporate more touch points to be able to understand how CLB may vary across different segments that we're interested in, uh, or the levers that we can pull to be able to you know, start to acquire more, more customers like our better ones. You, know, you can improve your predictive model moving to, you know, something that really incorporates all the different dynamics that might be going on with, you know, customer behavior at your particular company. Yeah. So it's that sort of thing that can kind of help move you from B plus to A plus. But, um, yeah, I think the key is really, you know, get, get started with something that's workable and, uh, and then kind of move your way up from there. So CLV is right. Customer lifetime value for anybody that's not kind of with us at this point. <laughs> um, it's one of those metrics that is a board level metric for most companies, but it's kind of like a secondary or tertiary board metric. How much of that do you think is driven by the lack of precision that exists in it? And like just kind of the inherent understanding from both the investor side and the operator side that the methodology around it is relatively basic in most organizations, which makes it less reliable, which makes it hard to put too much weight on it. I almost think that the the bigger issue is kind of conflict of incentives, you know, that when people are using it, there's a question of what you're trying to do with it. And um, if it's a measure that you're going to put in front of your investors or other stakeholders, then there's a strong incentive to just make everything look good, you know, so you want your CAC to be small, customer acquisition costs, sorry, you know, we're throwing out all these <laughs> acronyms, that's the they are. Yes, you want your customer acquisition costs to be low, you want your, your customer lifetime value to be super high. And so inevitably, you start arbitraging the assumptions, you know, for how mm -hmm. you define the measures, and you start pulling out certain expenses that really you, you might want to keep in. And that's just going to leave you with it's going to leave you with numbers, you know, but they won't be diagnostic numbers. And you know, ultimately, when I think of what it's supposed to be like, it's supposed to be like a doctor. And this is kind of like your health checkup and you want to know what your cholesterol is. And obviously we all want our cholesterol to be low, but if it's high, it's high. <laughs> and so we need to be realistic about it or else we can't get better and we might end up suffering from a heart attack. And so mm -hmm. yeah, I think that there's a real analogy there. Uh, but if the consumer is not the right person, you're not going to try and get exactly the right answer. 
Um, I think the precision is important, but you know, even at the very beginning, if you really just want to get started, you can remove the model entirely. You, know, mm -hmm. you can just go with purely historical figures where you say, you know, this is what the finite horizon value of customers has been. And we're just going to focus on activity that we've already observed. And so there's no guesswork about models. It's just literally, this is it, you know? And obviously we want to work work up to a prediction, but uh, you know, the fact that you can have something that's purely historical based can make it a lot more auditable. And, uh, right. and, and it can just lead to more confidence if you are presenting this in front of you know, your, your board members that there's no, there's nothing that's kind of creeping into the numbers, you know, that that's wrong because of the predictive model itself. Brian, I would also go so far to say that I actually think that these metrics are things that investors care more about than ever right now. So I, I do think that there's been a shift in the economy and everything like that that's going on. I think that investors care more about um, like net retention, which in some facets ties back to LTV or customer lifetime value, however we want to use that acronym. Uh, but ultimately, I think that more investors are looking at that more than even revenue right now as a, as a lying indicator of, of growth and where they want to put their dollars or whether they're going to continue to invest. So I think that's a shift that is happening. And I think more brands are seeing investing dollars dry up, especially in the D2C world, right? I think this is one of the reasons why this is happening, right? Mm -hmm. I think more investors are actually more focused on customer-specific metrics. And a lot of these brands haven't necessarily figured that out. And that's why the dollars could potentially be drying up for them. Mm -hmm. And Dan, when you, right, back in your, your hedge fund days, and also when you are working with and speaking with investors, like, Given the lack of a standardized formula, if you will, or the the grayness and the manipulatability that can exist inside of a company's data, like how often was the strategy from that side of the table, like asking the company just for the raw data and then running your own calculations on it? Yeah, that's the ideal if it's possible. If it's a public company, then they really can't give you that data, unfortunately. Yeah. But, you know, if you're under NDA or if you're in a, a private equity setting where you're evaluating a company and you're going to take a majority position or even acquire them outright, then oftentimes uh, when you get to that final stage of the diligence process, they'll open up the kimono and give you access to everything. And uh, and it's at that stage where you really can remove a lot of the, the guesswork and they will still have their investor presentation, but you can actually kind of reconstruct your own, you know, bottoms up view from first principles. And, uh, and that's a really nice thing to be able to do. Um, yeah. Yeah. We so certainly went that, through that process in our, in our due diligence. <laughs> so I love this, uh, way of thinking about it where almost crawl, walk, run, right? Like what is required to get to a B level or B plus level and that being really centered on transaction data combined with CAC and COGS data. And using that, you, you can basically get a, a look at it, right? Then you can look on cohorts going backwards and get at least the historical picture. When you start to look forwards, 
What are the additional, and, and start to go from maybe crawling to walking, what are the additional pieces of data that you think are most influential and should be added next into the equation? The best thing that we would want to be able to have are older cohorts. <laughs> and it's kind of this funny thing that in some sense, it's the youngest cohorts that are the most important because they're the ones who are coming in right now. They're probably the ones who are most indicative of the customers you're going to acquire in the next quarter. And, uh, and they're also the ones who are most malleable. You know, if a customer has mm -hmm. been with you for 10 years, they're probably pretty set in their ways and you may not need to do a whole lot with them. And it's a good thing, but it also means you can't really do stuff to, you know, greatly enhance their value, at least in terms of changing their purchase behavior. So the, the challenge though, is that those young customers are the ones that you know the least about by construction. You know, you just acquired them. So you don't really have transaction history for them in any real amount. And so to be able to marry up what you do have about them with behavior and maybe behavioral characteristics uh, of older cohorts, it's just necessary. And it's really, really valuable to be able to lean on those old cohorts to be able to pin down what you should expect the young cohorts to do. So, and that's a kind of a tricky thing because if you think about it from the company's perspective, it's like, well, yeah, I can acquire different data sets. I can invest in my CRM system, but I can't make myself five years older to have a whole bunch of old cohorts. And so, yeah, there is an element that you can't really do a whole lot about that, except to the extent that you do have many companies that are kind of changing, like migrating to Shopify or migrating to some other transaction log. And sometimes what ends up happening is you can't really link the same customer across the two different files and you end up kind of just dumping or deleting all the old stuff. So yeah, certainly you can invest in being able to kind of link across uh, transaction logs to the extent that, you know, you did some sort of a migration, uh, you know, but hold, holding that aside, it really is, it, it, you know, the, the rubber hits the road with that purchase data. So the more older cohorts you have, you know, with it, the more you can uh, kind of bring the whole thing to life. And then given that you have the older data from cohorts that go further back, when you say starting to look at behavioral data and characteristics, is what you're really looking for there, like if we introduce this behavioral data point, right? So like, let's say, for example, we're going to bring in customer service data and let's look at how the future purchase behavior. So the lifetime date, uh, lifetime value changes based on the number of service touch points that somebody has. And then is it are you sort of looking for like, what are the data points, the service touch points in this example that create uh, very clear and distinct lines and have like a clear influence? And then those are kind of the data points that you then commit to in your both historical measurement, but also your forward predictions. Is that kind yep. of the train of thought? You can think of it. In simplest terms is, you know, imagine that we have this great model for how valuable customers are. You know, we've run it on, on the old customers, but then we also have this data about, to your, to your example, the, the service touch points. And it could be that in the first, you know, three months of, uh, of each of those customers' lifetimes, did they have good experiences or bad experiences or something like that? And it could be that that ends up being predictive of the customer's value for those older cohorts. 
then for the young cohorts, you know, you've observed much less of their transaction data, but you also may have that same data point like, oh, you know, over the first three months, these people had the good experiences and these ones did not. Then you can kind of look back to the previous relationship between value and experience and apply that to uh, to the young cohort as well. So it's that sort of thing you can do where you're kind of leaning on these other data points that are available. And if you had you know, five years worth of transaction history, you may not even need that because you just observed so much that it kind of all shakes out in the purchase history. But at the very beginning, you know, you just, you don't have that purchase history to lean on in assembly. And so you kind of need to look to whatever else might, might be there, uh, including, you know, that, that service touchpoint data. I do feel that if, if you're just going on the purchase history and you have a lot of data, then that would be a solid predictor of the future at an aggregate level in like a static state, if that makes sense. Like assuming that you're not investing millions of dollars into efforts to improve the business, assuming that the environmental factors around the business haven't changed, like in that way, it would be predictive at an aggregate basis. But when you think about, when you think about how this data and these metrics can inform the actual like operating strategies inside the business, right? So like if we more deeply understand lifetime value and we understand across all the insane amount of enterprise data that exists that like these are the five behavioral data points or whatever those things are that will most heavily influence the lifetime value, then you can kind of work against that, right? And you can say, okay, like we've identified that, let's say it is service touch points. Let's say that it is like different products that are being purchased. Let's say that it's like involvement in community, like whatever these sort of things are that create clear divisions in lifetime value, looking at previous cohorts, right? You can almost use that to then do a journey mapping exercise and say, okay, right? These are the things that lead to the most successful customers. Let's track these as independent metrics on new cohorts that are coming in and try and like drive these new customers towards those those like milestones, if you will, right? So like, let's get them into a community or like, let's do our best to in like either improve the service touch point or make it so that it doesn't happen uh, or kind of whatever those milestones are that you identify in your own data. And then you can, right, then you can be very actionable and you can actually improve the metric over time by knowing what the drivers are. Is that how you think about it as well? Yeah, certainly. You can definitely do that. Uh, I think the, the key is to make sure that when you're getting those estimates, the, those correlates of value, if you're going to be taking action on them, that you have confidence that those relationships are causal. Yeah, I think that um, you know, it's kind of just the one caveat that I often give that the correlation need not be causation. And to the extent that the way that you estimated that you know, effect of, of service touch points is that you had, you know, your product and then you had kind of the existing solution and you kind of randomly treat, you know, some customers, but don't treat others, then that gives you really nice variation uh, that can be exploited to be able to get an estimate of you know, the impact of your product on customer value. 
And once you've got that kind of pinned down from the older cohorts, then absolutely, you know, I think for the young ones, you would expect that that relationship should hold, you know, because you, you did have kind of valid variation that should give you confidence in, in causal estimates. It's interesting. I think about a couple of brands actually that might have done this very thing. And I could be wrong here, but I can think about Comcast and Xfinity. Like they, they never give. You're not like, going to compliment them, are you? I don't know. <laughs> so here's the thing. Like we've moved a lot um, over the course of me and my wife's marriage. And when you move a lot, that means that you have to transfer services of your internet because you need that, especially for me who works from home. So you never get the same deal as a brand new customer. So like if you're like me and, and trust me, I'm not the only one that has done this. There's many people that I know that do this, but they'll literally like swap the account from like, that's what I did with me and my wife. Like I became the account owner and then she became the account owner every time we moved so that we could get a good deal because they would never give the same deal to a brand new customer as they would an existing customer. And you saw this in um, the telecommunications comp uh, industry as well with Verizon Wireless and AT&T and T-Mobile. They would never give uh, the same deal to a new line versus somebody who is an existing customer. And now you're seeing some of this, I think, mixture of a shift a little bit that's happening with these companies so it's like i mean do they have do they have enough data now to like <laughs> now they're like okay now we understand it like did it take them 10 years like is that how long it takes you know dan dan what do you think's informing these strategies you're decently familiar with that whole world well you know we've done a little bit of work with some telecom companies so um yeah can't can't get too specific but yeah i would say that <laughs> I mean, they have very good data that goes back very far. So, you know, they've, they've got a lot, but it is kind of a mess to be able to kind of piece it all together. It, it really is non-trivial. You know, but certainly I think the, the dynamic that you're describing that older customers are, they're in some ways kind of locked in, you know, that they're not moving around. That's a very real thing that kind of plays out in the data. And so if you know that, that they're locked in, um, as proxied for through the fact they've been with you for a real long time, then they don't have necessarily uh, a major economic incentive to give a whole lot of discounts to you or, or deals. And so oftentimes uh, they won't. And certainly you could imagine hypothetically the sort of things that they could do. You know, they, they basically would do kind of what I described a moment ago. You know, they just say, well, let's just give some of these people discounts. Let's not give some other people discounts. Assuming that, you know, they're all fairly old um, and let's just look at the difference in cancellation rates or how much, you know, the people spend. And I think what you would find is that there's not a whole lot of effect, you know, but whatever the, the result might be, that can be then used in the future to decide whether or not to continue to, you know, to give discounts to people like you. But yeah, I think given your experiences, uh, yeah, I think you can probably guess what the answer might be <laughs> so dan not just my experiences you've experienced that i promise you brian has i mean everybody that has a cell phone or has internet has experienced exactly what i'm talking about the dynamics are so different in these monopolistic oligopolistic sort I of throw industries out like, listen to these it, words he's throwing out dan what no, is but, but in, in, in these in these industries <laughs> in these industries where there's like 
you can count on two hands the amount of companies that are there and like the barriers to entry are huge and the government involvement is significant, right? You think about airlines and and telcos and like the energy companies and and even like bordering into like insurance and that sort of stuff. Like it's just such a it's such a different dynamic, right? So much of the value, so much of caring about these metrics and caring about the experience that you're giving is motivated by operating in a competitive ecosystem and the need to like truly earn and build trust and build affection from your customers versus like there's two providers in town and I have to choose one of them and like one of them was already hooked up to my apartment so like I'll just do that one and and like they're all kind of just making a ton of money in the end anyways and I don't know it just feels like there's such different dynamics and yeah, innovations and, the questions yeah. yeah I was gonna say yeah James the the experience I've had is kind of like what Brian's describing that if I had the ability to continue I, I don't necessarily know that that I would, I feel like it's, it's mostly driven by, you know, are, are you one of the one or two companies that are available and do you have a line into my building <laughs> or house? And that kind of determines the answer. Uh, so yeah, it really is kind of a sad state of affairs, but it also raises really interesting questions about lifetime value and how you kind of decide what it is that you should do around it. Cause inevitably you can kind of keep robbing from the piggy bank and chipping away from things that you had been providing to the customer, you kind of yank those away. Uh, you keep that profit. If the customer has to stay, then they're going to stay. And so inevitably that will be deemed the right thing to do. But there's a question of how, how much you can do that before you've kind of pushed it too far. And, um, yeah, I think, uh, Rob Markey and, and the folks at Bain, you know, they'll call, they'll call it bad profits. You know, that there can be bad profits, but you know, there's a question of how, like on what sort of horizon do you need to look to really be able to see, you know, that that's not the right thing to do. Um, and that's, that's a tough question, but if you have a kind of a shorter horizon, then you're almost surely going to infer that you got to keep yanking the service away from really from your, from your good customers. To the extent that these companies have the data and are operating in profit maximizing ways rationally i think that their actions kind of show that at least they believe that like you kind of push it pretty far like i i wonder if the barrier is like social backlash or like the government boundaries that are put in place right it's so like airlines is an example of where there's like huge government involvement and safety is something that just like that's a it's a non-starter sort of conversation where you can't cut corners on safety. Yeah. And those, yeah, yeah. If, if the time span of those changes is two decades, then it's really, you can't really expect any predictive model to, to pick it up because the predictive model, it, it can only be trained on the data that's available. You know, I think the longer term effects that would be more, you know, observable through like a, a historian, historical type analysis. You know, that, that really looks over long spans of time and is drawing associations maybe to, to other industries that had similar dynamics. You know, but oftentimes that, that would not be 
brought into to the sort of analysis that, that we would do. You know, so you, you can just kind of see where you end up kind of falling into this lo local optimum um, and it wouldn't really be able to tell you to do otherwise. And yeah, I'm not sure what the right solution is other than, you know, if you had some notion of, of how over longer spans of time, you know, customer satisfaction or lack of satisfaction has led to major disruptive change. You know, so you kind of need to keep the customers happy above a certain level or something, you know, then that can serve as kind of a baseline. That even if your model's telling you to, to go below that, you kind of know you really shouldn't go there because you're entering the danger zone or something. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, it's tricky. Yeah, and that ties back to what we were kind of talking about with those, right? It starts with transaction data, but then when you go deeper and you start to look at the behavioral data and characteristics, like the better you understand what the drivers are of the top line numbers, the more tactful you can be, whether whether it's about maximizing profits or and right and like choosing which things to underinvest in or cut, or it's going the other way and it's like we want to invest in maximizing what the lifetime value is going to be. Like all of it kind of relies on an understanding of what those drivers are. Yeah, I think it it also it it really points out this asymmetry that if you're evaluating an investment that you're looking to make to improve customer experience and you see that translate into more satisfied customers who are staying for longer, then you're in the good zone. You know, you're not kind of rob you couldn't rob from the piggy bank there. So there's no concern about bad profits being earned. Yeah, you know, I think the the opposite is where you kind of need to think about it a bit more. And I think the the good zone for that would just be situations where you're pulling out expenses, but you you can also see that it's not translating into lower customer satisfaction. So if you can kind of get this arbitrage where you're able to pull out the cost, uh, it's not leading to customers being unhappy with you, then great. You know, you just kind of earned yourself an arbitrage. But I think you know, being able to kind of work in, you know, customer some measure of customer sentiment, it can be useful for things like that. We got to ask you one more question, and it's going to not be related to customer lifetime value. So I, I want you to just, just be Dan for a second. I want you to tell us about a good or bad experience that you've had when you've had to engage with customer service and what was the outcome of it? Well, one of the most recent examples was, this is going to be awfully specific. That's okay. Yeah, with Panera Bread, <laughs> I've just had multiple bad experiences with their delivery service. If you place an order and you, you didn't do something right, they'll say that, oh, you know, we're going to we're going to cancel the order on the back end and we're going to fix it. And, um, and then they don't. <laughs> and then there was another time again, they said multiple issues with, um, with their delivery service. And I don't know if it's that they've outsourced delivery to DoorDash and that's kind of leading to some of these issues, but you know, there's a, a previous time where, uh, I'd asked for it to be delivered and I had this clear note, you know, you need to give me a call, you know, I can kind of come out to you kind of waiting. I was like, well, where the heck is my food? And uh, no call, no nothing, said it was delivered. No idea where this was delivered because it wasn't delivered or <laughs> delivered to, to the door. And so I had to order it again. And um, you know, both times it was very costly for Panera because actually both times they ended up giving me a free meal, obviously. 
yes, they kind of ended up with me not being happy with their service and with them, you know, losing money. So um, not good all around. Dan, it's been wonderful to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much. Dan, where can can people go to find more of your stuff? You're doing so much interesting stuff out there. Yeah, that was going to be one thing I was going to mention. So certainly I I talk a lot on uh, LinkedIn and on Twitter. Uh, On Twitter, my handle is uh, D underscore McCarr, M-C-C-A-R. And then on LinkedIn, if you just look up Daniel McCarthy, Emery, it should pull me up. But if you're interested in this stuff, I gab about it all the time. And uh, yeah, built up a really nice community of people who chime in and keep me in my place when I'm wrong. (laughs) So yeah, so definitely connect with me there. Um, I was going to mention too, when you talk about crawl, walk, run, um, you don't need to reinvent the wheel yourself. You know, I have this company, uh, Theta, and we do this, you know, so if you are interested in just kind of getting off the ground, you know, we'd love to work with you and kind of help give you what those best definitions are, help you think about the data issues. Obviously, you know, we live and breathe the predictive models. And so we can certainly get you to, uh, you know, to, to run there really quickly. So um, you just wanted to kind of put that out there. ThetaCLB.com is the website. Thanks so much, Dan. Yep. Thank you if, for having me. This has been great. A lot of fun. If you've if you've not subscribed to Spamming Zero, please do so. Give us a review. Also, reach out to Brian or I if you want to hear a topic that you haven't heard yet. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week.